Today we are reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read the entire chapter. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has binded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with him to yourself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emily, and a very good morning to everyone here at St Jude's in Parkville. My name is John Forsyth. I have the great privilege of being the vicar at St Jude's, and can I also extend my warm welcome to you if you are visiting us this morning. We are delighted that you can be with us in this season of Advent as we look to Christ, who is the light of the world. And what an encouraging story we've already had uh, from Agana, sharing her story of how Christ has been the light in her life, and the text we have before us in 2 Corinthians 4 actually picks up some of those themes. It's almost as if someone else has been planning this service. 
uh, so wonderfully well. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was uh, relatively well behaved, and what I mean by that is I wasn't caught when I did things that were wrong. Uh, my school report always said, John is a good and conscientious student, and my parents thought the same thing. Um, that doesn't mean, by the way, I always did the right thing, and I'm conscious that there are children here, and so I want to make sure, kids, this is probably the bit you don't want to listen to, and if you are listening to, this is not an example from your senior minister on how to behave. Just want to clarify that, because what I don't want are angry emails from your parents first thing tomorrow morning saying, thanks, John, my child is now doing this. Okay, we have the disclaimer out the way. Parents, on, uh, uh, this is not my fault if your children now do this. Uh, near my house growing up, there was a train line. And on this train line, there was a train tunnel. Now, this was a goods line, so the trains were relatively infrequent, maybe four or five times a day. But we would like to sneak down there, we found a hole in the fence, and we would go inside the tunnel and walk from one end to the other. The train tunnel was 800 metres or so long. Now, also, it had a blind corner right at the other end, so there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Or let me say it again, if you saw a light at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> it, it meant a train was approaching you. So we would, being silly teenage boys, take it in turns, walking by ourselves from one end of the train tunnel to the other at night time. Uh, one thing that you discover as you're about 20 or 30 metres in is the darkness becomes utterly overwhelming. The cliche of not being able to see your hand in front of your face is true and we would have to walk along kicking the, the rail just to ensure that we were walking in the right direction. It was utterly disorientating. You had no idea which direction you were. Because utter Physical darkness actually causes disorientation as our brains desperately try to work out which way we go. Uh, the Bible actually teaches us that physical darkness has the same effect on us. It is disorientating. It gives us a life without direction. And we actually live in a world that is far too often a dark place. We only have to turn on the news or read news online to see that our world is desperate for light. Ukraine, Israel, Palestine. They are just of the few, uh, of the over 30 countries that currently face conflict. Just today, over 30 countries do not have peace. And even in our own lives, there are places where we have our own personal darkness, perhaps where we hide in anxiety or guilt or shame or broken relationships. And sometimes Christmas can exacerbate those things. Sometimes it's joyful, but also sometimes it's a reminder that things aren't great. And so Christmas can also be a dark time for people. As I mentioned, we are in the series of Advent in our church calendar. And one of the great beauties of Advent is it's where we celebrate the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. We look for His coming again, where He will end, in all, where he will end all darkness. And we look back to the time where He came 
as a child to bring light to the world. Uh, The prologue of John's Gospel, by the way, puts the birth of Jesus in that exact kind of image. Uh, In John 1 verse 9, we read, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That is the good news that we as Christians celebrate at Advent and Christmas. It's why we have lights and candles and all those fun things to remind us that Jesus is the light. Now, this is all very good news and very exciting, but as we look at 2 Corinthians 4, what we see is there's actually a deeper darkness, almost a double blindness that humanity faces. In other words, our world is not just only desperate for light, which I think people would say, yes, that's true, regardless of whether you have a religious belief or no religious belief. What we're taught in 2 Corinthians 4 is that our world is so blind, in so much darkness, that it actually cannot even see the light when it comes. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, what Paul is doing is, he's continuing a defense of his ministry. And he's particularly addressing the question, look, why don't more people respond to the gospel, the good news? Why don't more people see the glory of Christ? And by the way, there is so much in chapter 4 that when I first sat down to work out this sermon, I worked out, good, there's at least four or five hours worth of material here. Uh, It would be unfair to you for me to do that. Uh, And so we're not going to be able to cover everything in 2 Corinthians 4 because it's such a beautifully rich theological passage. But we will tease out some key things. Uh, Initially, in verses 1 to 2, Paul responds to the challenge of why aren't people responding by saying, look, I'm I'm not going to kind of declare and proclaim the gospel in some deceptive way. Like he renounces secret and shameful ways, he wants to proclaim the gospel truthfully and clearly. Nothing fancy. I'm not going to kind of fancy up the gospel to make it easier for ears to hear and for eyes to see. And then in verses 3 to 4, Paul gets to the heart of the issue. It's not an actual issue with the gospel message itself. The issue is that people's minds are blind to its truth. There's a double effect. You see, sin not only causes our world to, to be a dark place where we see evil and suffering, but the darkness is so strong that people then actually even cannot see the glory of Christ who's come to fix our world. We see in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. These, these, these two verses, verses 3 and 4, are really key in Paul diagnosing what's wrong with the world. It's double darkness, it's double blindness. Notice too, it says here that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, the world is not a neutral place. Its default setting is rebellion to God. That is, that is what sin does. And sin isn't just doing a few bad things, sin is living a life with no reference to the one who's created us and who loves us. It's living in darkness, it's blind. And Paul is very clear, it means that it faces God's judgment. Secondly, notice 
that the culprit of this blindness is, in Paul's words, the God of this age, small g God of this age. Uh, Paul is referring to Satan. Uh, Ephesians 2.2, Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, it's important to note, uh, the Bible doesn't say that that Satan has a right to the world. No, he's a usurper. He's encroaching on God's property. It's not the God of the world, it's a God of the age. Uh, Psalm 24.1 makes it really clear, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But Satan is seeking to corrupt. He is a a liar and a father of lies, as we read in John 8.44. He leads people away from God. He blinds them to the gospel, whether they're aware of it or not. That's part of being blind. You don't know what you don't know because you can't see what you can't see. And and Satan's goal is not to make people like him. I saw this uh, thing in the States, there's a debate whether this club at university called the Church of Satan should exist or not. And uh, it was quite bizarre because the values for the Church of Satan were very Christian values. (laughs) It was very strange. Anyway... It's not to make people like him or even believe that he exists. That's not his goal. His goal is to hinder the work of God. His goal is to stop people putting their trust in Jesus. And his strategy is deception, lying. And so he has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. See, Paul's not saying, look, there is no light, and if only a light came along people would see. He's saying the deception is so great that even when the light comes, people will not recognize it for what it is. That's the challenge. In other words, thirdly, it's not just, it's not a physical problem, it's not an intellectual problem, spiritual problem is what it is. See, instead of seeing the gospel as the glory of Christ, Jesus can seem like a myth or a fairy tale to some people. Others would say, no, Jesus is a genuine historical character. In fact, most historians would argue that. Interesting, great teacher, but not God. There is no conviction of sin. There's no fear of God's judgment on their lives, of their own desperate situation. There's no sense of God's holiness or God's love or any sense that Jesus has come to die for them and to take their sin on the cross. In other words, uh, you might see Jesus as being interesting, but as verse 4 says, they do not see the light of the gospel displaying what? The glory of Christ. The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the missing bit. In other words, not only is humanity living in darkness and perishing, but so blind, it cannot recognize its rescuer when it comes along. Now, this is very interesting, because it means that if Jesus comes as the light of the world, that's not enough. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, firstly, we've got to understand that the incarnation is truly astonishing. The fact that Jesus became God Himself put on flesh. That is an astonishing 
truth, a moment of light, but it's not enough. It's not enough to deal with the sinfulness of the human heart. Even at the beginning of the gospel, John's gospel, he highlights this fact. In verse, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Good news, the Saviour's here. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. Good news. Bad news. But his own did not receive him. See, if someone is to, to see, to comprehend, to recognize, to receive just who Jesus really is as the glorified Christ, something radical needs to happen. For our minds to see the glory of Christ, our hearts need to see the glory of Christ first. I'll say that again. For our minds to comprehend who Christ is fully, our hearts need to first comprehend who Christ is fully. And, and verse 6 is quite profound because it teases out this kind of two-step process. Notice there's a subtle change in language in verse 6 that's really, really important. Notice how often the word light is used in a slightly different context. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Okay, Paul is firstly reminding us who this God is. He's the God who creates light. This is way back in Genesis 1 verse 3. This is something, by the way, only God can do. Now, you might be able to turn a light switch on, right? That's about the limit of your ability to control electrons. God Himself creates light just by saying, let there be light. This is a thing that only God can do. It's a miraculous power of the sovereign God. That's, that's the first bit. For the God, this is telling us who the God is, the God who creates light. It says the next thing, made His light shine in our, what's the next word, is hearts. Before it was their minds were blinded, but here it says actually, hearts need to see the light first. He made His light shine into our hearts for a purpose, the very next section, to give us the light, it's the third time light's used, of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. See that? Uh, the God who creates light needs to shine light into our hearts, then our minds can comprehend. Shine into our hearts, then the knowledge, the mind at work can comprehend who Christ is. That's the order, isn't it? Hearts see the light, so minds, then you can understand who Christ is. And by the way, heart is not just your... Um, the thing you feel with, that's a very Western idea, you know, at a Valentine's Day, I love you with all my heart. Uh, it's, it's far more than just the emotions, it's who you truly are, it's your true self. You need to truly be changed as a person, as a whole, before you will see Christ, before your mind will recognize who Christ is. And this is what Jesus does. He comes into the world as the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He is the one who says those words. Like, he is the God who creates. The world is created through Christ. 
And it's at Jesus' birth, he's announced as the light of the world, but it's actually in his death that he will accomplish this work, where he will take our place and suffer the cost of our rebellion, of our sin. At Jesus' death, something profound happens with light and dark. Can you remember what happens? Darkness comes over the land. Here is the light of the world facing darkness. The darkness of God's judgment and death. So we can have that gift of light and life. That double gift. That's the beauty, is that the incarnation leads to Christ's victory over sin and death. So how do we respond then to that double blessing? Well, Paul gives us, uh, amongst other things, which there are lots of things happening in chapter 4, I want to highlight two key things that help us. Firstly, can you see how it gives us tremendous humility? God's grace completely undercuts any arrogance or superiority we have as people. You are a Christian, not because you are super awesome, but because God has shined His light into your heart even though you were blind. He has healed you. He has opened your eyes. It is God's work from beginning to end. Let me, let me put it this way. If I was to ask you a question, why are you a Christian? We've heard a fun, wonderful story this morning. Uh, you might say, John, I'm a Christian because I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. And that is absolutely right. That's a great summary answer. But what, what if I was to ask the question, well, why did you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. And you might say, well, I was convicted of my sin and convicted of the fact that Jesus had died for me and been raised to life for me. I'd say, that's a great answer. Why were you convicted of your sin and why do you think Jesus is your, the one? Oh, because someone opened God's Word with me and shared with me the fact and showed me that I'm a sinner. And so, okay, well, why did that then change your heart? And you can keep asking that question and you keep giving the, the, the answer I, and I can keep answering the question why, and eventually you'll get to the point, actually, well, God changed me. Like, at some point, you're going to have to get to that level. And that's the point, because the other option is, I was a bit more enlightened than somebody else, that's why I understood the gospel better. I was not as blind as somebody else, I had a, a higher morality, I was a little wiser, a little smarter. But what Paul is teaching us here is actually, no, it's God who opens our eyes, not ourselves. There's nothing intrinsically great about us. It is always, from beginning to end, grace. Either I worked it out or God worked it out. And it's clear that God has worked it out. Notice how, how Paul then moves in verse 7. He says, we have this treasure which it is, by the way, to, to have the grace and mercy of God, in jars of clay, to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, this is God's work. It's from God, it's not from us. He's the one who gives us the sight to see Jesus. And that's the humblingness, the, the humility that, that, that the gospel kind of points towards us and says, guess what? It's actually not about you, it's about what God's done in you. God has placed His um, priceless treasure 
His act of mercy and love, not in a solid gold case at Fort Knox, not in a kind of a Fabergé egg, some crafted by artisan, no, in a jar of clay. By the way, this, the, the jars of clay are the disposable cups of the first century. Do you know when you get a coffee and you forgot to bring a keep cup? That's what this is. You don't go home and keep the precious diamond you found in an old Coles coffee cup. Would you, like, you'd be crazy, right? What is wrong with you? But that's what Paul says. Each jar was handmade, original, temporary, easily broken, easily thrown away, easily forgotten. Yet each jar is filled with the most precious gift there is. In other words, the clay jar by itself is worthless, but that's the humility. But it contains the most precious treasure in the universe. And therefore, it is priceless. And that is an extraordinary picture of humility. That is why you are so valuable. And secondly, the second consequence here is we have extraordinary security as a result. Humility and then security. Our world operates on a very time-bound point of view. It says, look, whatever you have now, that will secure your future. That's what you can base your future on. That's the thing that you can say, that will shape the direction I'm going. In other words, you look at your life circumstances. You look at the quality of the jar of clay. How classy is your jar, jar of clay? That's, that's our world. That's your treasure. That's your bank account. That's your health. That's your career opportunities. Whatever it is that you look and say, that's what makes my life valuable. That's what I'm going to bank on. That's my security, my abilities, my wealth, my children. By the way, these things can be great. Sometimes these things are bad. But they are all completely temporary. They cannot bear the weight of eternity. See, God does not redeem you because of some self-enlightenment or because you've achieved a certain career status. He has redeemed you because He loves you, because He loves you. Which means you have an astonishing security, even in a world where everything else seems unsecure and uncertain. Because God's love is eternal. Now, what this means is we can face genuine struggles and genuine uncertainties and still know that our treasure, that is God's love, remains secure. Everything else can change, but the most important thing won't. See how Paul builds on this idea in verse 8? He says, look, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed. What's going on? Ever felt that? Like, what the heck is going on? But not in despair. We are persecuted. But we are not abandoned. We are struck down. But we are not destroyed. See, Paul is not living in some ignorant world where the things of this world are not difficult. He says, no, they can be really, really hard. We can feel hard-pressed, we can feel crushed, we can feel perplexed. But in the midst of that, we can know the peace 
and the love that is God. Because when you have uh, suffering in your life, you, you, you kind of have three options. It can leave you hopeless firstly because, because of your circumstances, you feel like you don't deserve it. And it's unfair that if God loved me, then He wouldn't let me go through this. Or secondly, it can leave you hopeless because you feel like you do deserve it. You feel the shame that, that God couldn't love you. Or thirdly, it can actually radically grow your hope because it is not in your circumstances. It's not the jar. It's the treasure that lies within. It is God's grace. See, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not without genuine suffering. But it is always with the sovereign love of God at the centre. And what this means is that our sufferings never ever overthrow the strength of God's love and the realities of His blessing. They can even be chances for joyful boasting. When I was studying right here at this college, we had some visiting pastors from China. They were sharing uh, their story in the old chapel, which is no longer here. And they were sharing the level of persecution they faced. We've heard some of that in a different context this morning. And it was, it was quite confronting for us uh, polite white Westerners who'd lived in Australia where our level of persecution, uh, to be fair, is close to non-existent. And at the end of the interview, the interviewer said, "Would you? we should then pray that the persecution stops. And they were shocked. What? No, they said. We, we don't want the persecution to stop because the more they persecute us, the more people hear about the gospel and the more people have come to, to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Don't, don't pray that persecution stops. Pray that we will joyfully boast in the midst of persecution, so that Christ is glorified. That completely shocked me. Because they were right. It's not that they wanted persecution, it's just that they had that bigger picture, that even in the midst of this, Christ was being glorified and their treasure was secure. This is why Paul goes on to write in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And here's the amazing verse, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul said, look, those troubles, look, they're just light. They're real, but compared to the glory of Christ... They're, they're tiny, you need a little microscope. So what do we do? We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, that is not on, on the, the jar of clay, on, on the circumstances of our lives, they're real, but they're not our future, they're not the thing that determines who we are, no, we fix our eyes on what is unseen, not what is temporary, but what is eternal. And this is the great encouragement of 2 Corinthians 
before. In a world of darkness, it shows us that Christ is truly the light, that He has overcome the darkness, He has won for us new and eternal life. And as we wrestle about living in a dark world, we know that Christ's light and love is unbreakable. It is eternal. So we fix our eyes on Him. Let me pray that we would do this before we stand and sing as people here to worship the true and living God. Our merciful Heavenly Father, You know only too well the darkness of this world. And it breaks our heart when we see the effect of sin and evil. When we see war and destruction. And in our own lives, where we are deeply shaken by events. Father, we thank You that You do not leave us in darkness, but have sent Jesus the light of the world. Christ not just come as a light, but has come to transform our hearts so that we can see the light. And so, Father, may we cling on to that precious gift. Although, outwardly, at times, we really feel that we are wasting away, may we truly know that inwardly we are being renewed day by day and therefore not lose heart, but fix our eyes on Christ, our light. Amen.